From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. I think, um, you know, we just got back a little while ago from, actually, I think your neck of the woods, um, Pennsylvania. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, our son, I think I mentioned in an earlier episode, our son uh, got married. Yes. And it was a wonderful wedding. You know, we were in Pennsylvania. We were in rural Pennsylvania, up in a little bump, you know, up there. Oh, oh yeah. So <laughs> and, you were very um, close to, like, Lake Erie. Yes, actually, we saw Lake Erie, and um, it was absolutely beautiful. The uh, you know living in Northern California, especially in the drought, you know our rolling green hills haven't you know been very green the last few years. But when they are, they're not the green of Pennsylvania. I mean, oh my gosh, that that green was magnificent. The trees were turning color. Oh yeah, and again we. Up, you know, we're far enough north here that we do get, you know, color art. The trees on our property are turning, um, but nothing like this. Oh, just the vastness of these forests. With, the, I mean, it's it's like it is like all the photos people post on Facebook, but even more glorious. Um, really beautiful. No, just uh, northwestern Pennsylvania is just absolutely stunning, uh, in my opinion every time of the year so but mm-hmm. i'm also a little bit biased since that's where i grew up so <laughs> yeah well you know we loved it we went to titusville we saw um drake's well you know where the oil industry nice, started yes. what a fantastic museum i mean really great and uh, and you know we ate in a little local shop where a restaurant where it was very clear they knew we'd weren't from there yeah and um but it's just everyone was just so nice and you know you know it's interesting because you know we talked about uh you know um uh, you know walt and his his growing up you know in 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 you know rural missouri there in marceline and how it affected him and you know when i was driving you know, we were driving through there because we drove a lot and explored and mm-hmm. talked to the local folk. I can really see why when he came from the city, Chicago, and all that, why why that experience of growing up like that in the farms and exploring, how, how that would have had such an effect on him and how that would have sparked his imagination. Yeah. Especially when we just saw our granddaughter, you know, running around and exploring and having those same kind of experiences, you know, in her bare feet, very different from her living in San Diego, you know, in, in the city. That's, and it, it's the same thing uh, living here now in Florida. I, I just don't understand how people have childhoods now and it wasn't like mine you know where it was 
it was you could run around bare feet uh barefooted in the yard if you wanted to and uh just out running around having fun with neighbors in even after dark but it's I just I don't see that in my neighborhood. I don't see that at all. I mean, in Florida, you can't walk around in the grass because the grass is so terrible here. It just hurts mm-hmm. your feet. It's it, it it blows my mind how how people do it in in different places and cities. Um, yeah. considering how I grew up. Yeah, we had a little of that in the town I the Carol and I live in, where uh, you know, and our, our children had some of that. But but nothing like this. Um, just just magnificent. I mean, I loved it. I mean, Carol and I loved it. It was incredibly cold. <laughs> a very different cold. Oh yeah. And yeah. Um, we have out here in California a little more penetrating. Huh. And um, but you know, no matter where you go, you always bump into dizzers. And that was so true. We were staying in Cory, Pennsylvania, and I was checking, you know, my email and, you know, Facebook and all that. And I got pinged by one of our listeners to Connecting with Walt. Hmm. And we we met up at the local Perkins, and and his name was Bobby, young man just graduated from high school. He his goal is to come out to uh, to to be a cast member, you know, continue his education and be a cast member out there in Walt Disney World. And and he and his dad came out, met with me and Carol, and he has a, a, a great love of Disney, great love of the history of Walt hmm. and Disney and just just a really charming young man. He gave me a, a collectible poster from Disney World 1973, oh, you wow. know, which was really cool because that was a year before I first went to Disney World. Yeah. So that was very nice. And so, so a big shout out there to, um, to Bobby out, out there in, in Pennsylvania. So hopefully we'll, we'll bump into again either – when we return to Pennsylvania or when he's a cast member at Walt Disney World. Yeah, it's very and, cool. And I met another listener to the show who was from Honolulu. I met her at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Her name is Marla, and she was very excited to meet me. And um, she was actually, though, heading out the door to go to the airport um, to catch a flight back home, so we couldn't talk too much. But she, uh, But anyway, she again sends her regards and how much she um enjoys the show so you know shout out to um to her luckily i had a button so i could give it to her i didn't have one in pennsylvania so i'm learning i just have to carry buttons with me wherever i go yep yes you do so anyway but but you know speaking of uh, of you know when when talking about uh you know history again and going back and and talking about childhood memories uh you know growing up in areas um craig do you remember the first time you saw mickey mouse or a film with mickey mouse this uh, this was a tough one uh i prepared a little bit ahead of time because genuinely i don't really remember um i i kind of whittled it down and um it it probably i'm gonna go with this as my number one answer i know i'm stalling because i couldn't decide what i wanted to actually say but uh you know while i was growing up uh especially it it makes more sense now than ever but uh, i know i would always watch a disney halloween uh, whenever mm-hmm. it was rebroadcast on, at that point in time, it would have been rebroadcast on Disney Channel. Um, but that is something that I know my parents taped at one point in time, and we would watch it on Halloween. And uh, 
and one of the segments on there was the the absolutely amazing short Lonesome Ghosts. And yes. <laughs> um that's that's definitely one of my earliest and fondest memories of of seeing Mickey uh in a cartoon. Um de- definitely that one. I know I, I saw Jack and the Beanstalk pretty early as well too. Um and probably probably other shorts, you know. I, w- I was a I was in a Disney Channel family, uh so my my parents paid extra for it because I was back whenever it was a paid channel. So I, I know I we watched that. it all the time, um, and I didn't get into Nickelodeon until I was a little bit older. So yeah, it was. I, I'm sure I I saw I saw Mickey a lot more before I can actually remember. But I'll go with Lonesome Ghosts. Yeah. What about you? you know, I'm. I, you know that I was really racking my brain with this because yeah, for me Mickey just always was, yeah. And um, you know I, I probably met him at the park before I saw him on film, only because my parents told me I went to the park mm-hmm. when I was one year old, and that wasn't too long after the park opened. Uh, so, but I, I think I most likely saw him on television. Because you know Walt was on TV every week, and we always watched him. So I probably saw him in one of the shorts, or you know something that um, you know just played on a Sunday. Yeah. And uh, so, but I, the very first one, you know, I can't, I, I can't think of. I, I think it might have been when it was. Um, oh, you know, oh, I think it's the Orphans Benefit. Oh yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I have a really vivid memory of that because I remember Clara Cluck was in it, mm-hmm. and Donald Duck was in it, and he was not getting along with the little mice <laughs> in the audience. And uh, so I think that might have been the very first actual Mickey Mouse short I saw because that has I have the strongest memory of yeah. that. That's a good so. one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, Craig and I are. Um, starting a new series and it's something i've always wanted to do and it wasn't quite a fit on the dis unplugged podcast disneyland edition that i'm also on um and that is to take a look at all of the animated films that disney has done and when we started connecting with walt a year ago i thought this is perfect for connecting with walt and so you know we and I thought, you know, we, we've been around a year now, so I thought this is the perfect time to launch it. There's a lot of films. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're, we better be – hopefully our numbers are going to stay up and, you know, Pete's going to keep us on the air so that we can, um, you know, finish this out. <laughs> and, um, but uh, Because then there's uh, the live action films and, oh, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of stuff we can start in on. But I think we're going to be able to bring a very unique perspective because, Craig, you have a background in film. Yes, yes, I do. I, uh, you know, I've, I, I went to college and studied um, television, film, uh, just you know, communication arts in general. Uh, but uh, I've gravitated towards film more than anything else. Uh, it's, you know, if you ask me what my main hobby is, it's it's watching movies in my spare time. Uh, I, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, I, I well enough to know that I could never move out to Hollywood and actually become a director or or an actor or anything I you know I 
I, I had ambitions, but I went with the more realistic route of there are a lot more talented people out there than me who want it just <laughs> a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I almost took the critics approach to it. If you can't, if you can't do it, critique it. So uh, that's that's where I've kind of been with it. But I, I, I love everything about it. So it's movies are just movies and television. They're just incredible things. Yeah. And you also do film reviews for uh, for the Diz Unplugged. You um, you write for the, on our website. Yes. You write reviews and you also give reviews for another one of our shows, Diz Pop. Yes. That's also hosted by Rhino Clavin. So um, so people can, if you're new to the Diz and you want to see some of other, you know, Craig's other work, you know, there's a couple of places there that you can see that, especially if you're interested in film. And so whilst Craig can talk about, the, you know, critique the films and talk about what goes into producing them and, and, and making them and why they are, you know, groundbreaking and, and what, what what new elements and, I mean, all kinds of things that you, you're going to bring up <laughs> about them, you yeah. know, why they were important in the history of film. I can fill you in on what was going on at the time. What is the history of this film? Who was involved in it? What was going on at the studio? Um, you know, all the behind-the-scenes things that went into making this film so i think you're going to get i think you'll get a really really good understanding of of the films that are made by walt disney and his animators so um so so i'm very excited about this so me too and and and, and we are going to start at the very beginning (laughs) oh yes we are and there's Not a lot of good in the critique of these ones. <laughs> we have to we have to look at them in the context of when they were made. <laughs> Very true. Very true. And um, and now now many of our listeners most likely know that before there was Mickey Mouse, which is why I brought him up. Uh, Walt Disney created a popular character named Oswald the Rabbit. And, you know, we're going to talk more about. Oswald in a future episode of Connecting with Walt. But what some of our listeners may not know is that Walt had an animation studio with a stable of popular characters even before Oswald the Rabbit. And uh, and starting with today's show, we are going to share the first part of that story. Now, in our previous episode, we saw Flora Disney board a train in the summer of 1910 at the Marceline Santa Fe train depot with her three youngest children, Roy, Walt, and Ruth, to join Elias Disney for a new life in Kansas City, Missouri. And so we're going to pick up this part of the story of Walt's life in 1910. Now, both Roy and Walt have returned from Europe after serving in World War I, Roy in the United States Navy and Walt serving nine months in France in the Red Cross. Um, After his discharge from the Navy, Roy returned to his job at the bank he had held before the war, and he was saving money so he could marry a local girl, Edna Francis. Um, Walt had come to Kansas City to make his fortune. So Roy and Walt took a 30-minute streetcar ride to Bella Fontaine to where the family house was at the time to say hello to their brother, Herbert. And Roy convinced Herbert to let Walt stay in the home. But there were no available bedrooms, so Walt slept on a couch in the parlor. 
Walt's first job was at the Gray Advertising Company in Kansas City as an art apprentice. And even more important than developing his art skills, Walt developed a friendship with another young artist apprentice who went by the name of Ub Iwerks. He would become Walt's friend and business partner in the future. Walt would develop another important relationship whilst working at Gray's, Frank L. Newman. He owned several Kansas City theaters, including the downtown Newman Theater, and that was the dominant and most lavish theater in Kansas City. And Walt was assigned to work on the covers for the Newman Theater's magazine. After six weeks at Gray's, Walt was let go, but this was only because Gray's had lost a large account for a tractor company, which forced Walt to be laid off. Walt looked around for jobs, and he ultimately got a job delivering mail during the Christmas rush. But this was a temporary job, and he was let go after New Year's, as as he expected. And all this time, though, Walt never gave up on his dream of cartooning. Which, of course, is the narrative is of his... The narrative of his entire life is he wasn't going to give up on this. So uh, I don't don't know why he would let a, a tractor account get him let go, force him to all of a sudden <laughs> just give up no, out of no. nowhere. No, that if you say anything about Walt as he pursued his dreams, uh, but he he had some low times here, as we're we're going to talk about. Oh, fun. Um, yeah. Uh, a, a few weeks later, Ub told Walt he was also out of the job. And Walt's response was, I've got an idea. Let's go into business together. Now, Ub was surprised, but agreed. The two decided to name their venture iWorks Disney, which Walt described as a little commercial art shop. They settled on that name because Disney iWorks sounded like the name of an optical firm. <laughs> Now, now, Walt had saved up $500 from his time in France and wrote to his mother, who was holding the funds for him in an account, and asked her to send it to him so he could start his new company. After learning the reason Walt wanted the funds, Flora sent Walt $250. So, so I guess she was being a little practical there. Yeah. Um, Walt promptly spent the money on supplies, including drawing boards and airbrush, and a tank of compressed air. I know I had no idea airbrushes existed at this time, but I guess they did. Yeah. Um, oh. yeah. Uh, the, the two 18-year-olds couldn't afford rent. Now, this is what is amazing to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to constantly refer to Walt's age in this. I mean, he was 18 years old, <laughs> and he is starting his own company. I, I know no. that's it's it's not an unheard of these days, uh, but it's definitely not common. I mean, it's the only thing I can even like equate it anymore really with our time period is if you end up becoming an actor or uh, a professional athlete. Like in in that circumstance, you say, oh, "Wow, they're they're." They're so young, but they've already, you know, they're they're taking their life into their hands so early and just giving it them shot. I guess that it's the same way with Walt, you know, trying to yeah. trying to start his own business at eighteen. It just it doesn't happen to just anyone. I know, and I, I keep equating it to what was I like at eighteen? I thought I was such a goof. I mean, there's no way I was going to launch my own company. 
Yeah, I, I can absolutely say that I I was not doing anything worthwhile at the age of 18. I probably yeah. wasn't worthwhile at that point in time, but... No, no. <laughs> but, no, I'm sure my parents are worrying about me. Then. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, so now, the two 18-year-olds couldn't afford rent, so Walton Ub's first studio was an unused bathroom in the headquarters of the National Restaurant Association. Uh, according to Walt, Iwerks Disney managed to pick up a few odd jobs, which enabled me to keep a little spending money in my pocket. It will never be known how long Walt and Ub would have succeeded as commercial artists because a help wanted ad in the Kansas City Star caught their attention and brought an end to iWorks Disney and introduced Walt to a form of filmmaking called animation. Walt always associated his start in animation with the two years he spent at the Kansas City Film Ad Service, which was a company that made slide and film advertisements for movie theaters. So, so I guess commercials started way back then in movie theaters. So I don't know why oh, yeah. I get so upset when I'm forced to sit through them now. I mean, you um, think about uh, you know every now and then you'll see see uh, movies that take place in the the 30s and 40s, and you'll see like how you know you used to go to the movies to see your news in that form. Right. I mean, that's that was like the earliest, uh, I mean, and advertising has always been around as, as long as there has been something to sell, something to promote. There have been people out there who have made a living out of, out of doing that. So yeah. it's, yeah, people really shouldn't be as irritated about it nowadays as they are with, it, yeah. with the exception of people who get upset solely because like, you know, commercials and, before or commercials for movies or the the movie trailers uh before the the feature actually plays it's it's usually ruining the upcoming movies you just don't know it yet <laughs> yeah yeah or they're showing the very best parts of the film yeah. no it just <laughs> yeah. happens more and more and more it's it's yeah. getting very frustrating mm-hmm. yeah I know Carol and I will sometimes sit through them and then say, I think we've seen the whole film. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, um, so when Walton uh, saw the ad in the Help Wanted mail section of the Kansas City Classifieds for Artist Cartoon and Wash Drawings, First Class Man Wanted, Steady. Walton Ub hoped this ad might be an opening for iWorks Disney. Walt called on the slide company president, Arthur Vern Cogger, and suggested his company could meet the slide company's cartooning needs, but Cogger had no interest in outsourcing the work. However, Cogger liked Walt and offered him the cartoonist position for $35 a week. This floored Walt. It was almost triple his old salary at Gray Advertising and more than double his monthly take at iWorks Disney. At Ub's encouraging, Walt accepted the position. It was decided that Walt would work for Cogger and Ub would run iWorks Disney. Well, within a few weeks, Ub would follow Walt over to the slide company. The slide company artists drew theater advertisements on glass plates or cards that were photographed. They also created live animated filmed ads, and Walt was assigned to work on the animated ads. 
Waltonub's love of animation took root during this time. They spent time outside of work to increase their knowledge and further develop their animation skills. They spent their free time going to the movies and practically memorized the formative book on animation that they checked out of the public library, E.G. Lutz's 1920 book, Animated Cartoons, How They Are Made, Their Origin and Development. It was the only book on animation in the library. Um... Walt checked out a variety of art books as well. Ub showed Walt the book Animals and Locomotion by Edward Muybridge, which showed sequences of animals and humans in various activities, such as walking, running, jumping, um, throwing a ball. And Walt was fascinated by the mechanics of making things move on film. He and Ub would also visit the Kansas City Art Institute. Um, Walt approached Cogger to talk about refining film ads animation process, but Cogger rejected the proposal. But he did give Walt permission to borrow a mahogany box camera with a hand crank so Walt could work on his own experiments with animation and film. So I just want to interrupt you for a little bit right here not not mm-hmm. too long just a second um mm-hmm. i had to look it up since you mentioned uh the eg lutz book uh you mm-hmm. can actually get it on amazon as a as a classic reprint so really? it, it's yeah on paperback for 13 dollars and 57 cents so uh, i'll make <laughs> wow. sure to put it in our our show notes too in our section where we list all of the uh, other books because I'm sure someone out there is going to be fascinated by uh, what's actually on the inside of it. So I, I just well, figured, I why so. not look? So. Well, that, that's how Walt self-educated himself. Yeah. I mean, was through that book. So that would be a really interesting book to have. Oh, yeah. No, I just, yeah. I, I know I'm going to add it right now into my uh, my my uh, my wish list on Amazon. And, of course, the uh, the, the Moy Bridges books are also on there and available so i'll make sure i post links just for anyone who's interested to even look at them yeah thank you for doing that research that's cool you're welcome so now in 1921 after one year at filmad 19 year old walt disney began what he called my home experimenting He rented the garage of his family's home on Bellafontaine Street for $5 a month to use as a studio. Now, Walt would come home after a long day at work and putter away in the garage, working and experimenting on animated cartoons beyond what film ads was creating. And Roy recalled that was Walt all the time, driving himself frantic day and night. Walt even created his own logo, a cartoon self-portrait showing a young man in a vest, bow tie, polka-dotted pants, and spats. You'll have to Google that, kids. With a pencil tucked behind an ear, sitting at a drawing board as discarded papers fell to the floor. And the caption read, Walt Disney, cartoonist, comic cartoons, advertising cartoons, animated motion picture cartoons, 3028 Bellefontaine, Kansas City, Missouri. It's actually one of my favorite logos that it is is related to Disney in any way. Like I wish I could have a big big like wooden plaque of it to hang up. It's so cool. Yeah, you know, that would be interesting if uh, you know how if you go into the Disney Anna shop at Disneyland and over at Walt Disney World, you know, they're remaking some of the classic yep. signs. 
Like yeah. they have Disneyland. I bought the last time I was out at Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom. I got the um, the Walt Disney Studios sign yes. you yep. know, with Mickey on it that was on the Hyperion Studio. Yep. I got that, and um, it would be cool if they made that. Yeah, that will be the uh, that sign will be the first thing I get as soon as my <laughs> sister's forty uh, percent off cast member rate. <laughs> comes back for the holidays so I, i've been i've been having my eye on it now for a while oh the, the walt disney studio sign. oh yeah it's beautiful yeah it is it's and it's very reasonably priced i think oh yeah no absolutely and the with the the wood the texture with the wood and everything it looks like it's actually uh-huh. printed on there very well it's very high quality yeah. it is it is so now looking back walt recalled I had some ideas. One was to do a sort of animated cartoon commentary on local topics for the Kansas City screen. Walt, now, Walt drew these in the lightning sketch style, in which a hand holding a pen on screen draws the cartoon at an increased speed. And Walt had a photograph of his hand holding a pen taken. He, he at first tried to photograph his his hand i mean film his hand doing it that didn't quite work so he had a photograph of his hand holding a pen taken then he re-photographed that photograph on the screen so there would be an illusion of his hand doing the sketch and i think it's fairly effective for the time um it took Walt about a month to put together a series of animated vignettes, and although he originally titled it Local Happenings, when Walt showed it to Frank Newman in the hopes he'd show it in his theaters, he renamed it Newman Laughograms. And so the the life the live action introduction shows Walt preparing to draw, followed by the lightning sketch cartoons about crime, ladies' fashion, and street disrepair. There was a segment on the slow Kansas City streetcars, but that doesn't appear to have survived. And then there's a cartoon about a shakeup at the um, Kansas City Police Department. So now this is available. Um, out there and so craig you and i have watched it what yes this is walt's very first animated attempt oh. so, so what are your thoughts on that first off i will absolutely a hundred percent agree with you um on the that the uh, the lightning sketch style actually <clears throat> looks very effective um it's you know, in general, the the short is very rough, but you have to remember it's 1921, so it, it, it's all brilliant looking at it. Um, the the first thing that I think these uh, the the Newman's laughogram really shows is that as much as we all admire Walt for everything that he's done in his lifetime, um, Walt was not a great artist. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't a great animator, and uh, unfortunately, this uh, this short really does show it. Um, while while his technique and how he did he he did the lightning sketch is actually it, it's very very fun to watch because it truly does look like he's he's sketching it all right out there in front of you. Um, it's it, he just I, mean, I I I can't draw as well as him. So, I you know I can't really go around talking, but um, the the he's just he's not that great of an animator. So which, the fact which that, he would be the first to admit, I and mean, he was very yeah, open yeah. about that. 
the, the fact that he was able to continue to get jobs in animation, I, I think it has to deal with. And I know, I know, Elb helped him a lot with the techniques and the styles and and how to really take animation to the next level with with special effects, even. Um, and and that that is something that Walt definitely needed because in in those early days, uh, for him to succeed, he had to try to do things different than how other animating animated uh movies were being made at that time and uh you know that obviously for us because we know what we're talking about today that's going to culminate in the last the last short film that he made that we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. but i don't want to spoil that one no (laughs) no that led on to even bigger things yes so now, now, after showing this um, to Newman Theater folks, uh, Walt made a deal to produce more films for 30 cents a foot. And Walt said, I was walking on air, and it must have been an hour before I realized I had forgotten one small detail, the profit. 30 cents a foot was exactly what it cost me to make it. <laughs> so, uh, so there, there. thank goodness um, Walt ended up having Roy in his life, who was yeah. more of a businessman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, Walt made several reels of Newman laughograms, but only the first pilot reel that we just talked about is known to exist. But, you know, Walt didn't care about the lack of profitability. Newman was paying for Walt's animation experimenting, and the exposure made Walt you know, something of a local celebrity. So by the middle of 1921, 19-year-old Walt Disney had worked at film ads for almost 18 months. He was making $40 a week and had made friends who would be important in his future of Iwerks, Fred Harmon, and Red Lion, who all shared a passion for filmmaking and animation. So Walt decided the time had come to open his own film studio. However, he would also keep his day job and continue to work at film ads. Uh, Walt and Fred Harmon started KC Studio, KC being the nickname for Kansas City. Rather than continuing the Laughogram, the Newman Laughogram series, Walt's plan was to produce a seven-minute short telling one story. He settled on a modern version of Little Red Riding Hood that would be a parody of the fairy tale classic and play off recent events. So Walt realized this project would require thousands of drawings and a production line approach to the animation process. He couldn't do this alone or with just Fred Harmon and Ub Irks. So Walt placed an ad in the Kansas City Star for young men who wanted to learn the animation business. And although they would start out unpaid, Walt promised to teach them the animation process and share in the huge profits that were sure to come. Now, some of the young animators who joined Walt would become industry legends. Hugh Harmon, Carmen Maxwell, Rudolph Ising, Laurie Tegg, Otto Wallerman, Fred Lyon, uh, Red Lion, and Walt's boyhood pal, Walt Pfeiffer. And most of them had day jobs, but thought nothing of working throughout the evening past midnight. So Walt and his staff worked from October 1921 through May 1922 to complete Little Red Riding Hood. And so uh, so, th- th- so this was now 
the first long, sh- you know, long short. Yeah. The, the, the basically the first short that told one continuous story that Walt produced. So, what are you, what are your thoughts on this one? I actually very much enjoyed watching this. Um, mm-hmm. It it did tell a, a complete, concise story, and um, obviously. You know, if you're a big Disney nut and if you listen to any of us, you know that this this is still at the time of uh, uh, being silent pictures. So we don't have the dialogue. It's just set to a instrumental track. Um, so uh, because of the the animation in this time period, it's it's got to have those sight gags, the, the little bit of fun uh, aspect of it to to really make it stand out, to make it enjoyable and and honestly it is um one of the things that i'm i'm sure a lot of people would notice first of it is obviously it is still crude um it's not snow white in the seven doors animated quality yet but uh nor should it be at this time period mm-hmm. considering it's his first little little uh, full length short that he just made here but um it, for animation at this point in time and even still uh you know it's you still see it from time to time today uh, it was very prevalent in the 60s with Hanna Barbera uh but there was a particular style where you would just have the backgrounds repeat in loop and so it almost looked if if characters were just running on a treadmill um constantly reusing frames so uh, the the idea behind it is um you know, if if you really want to make a piece, you'll make uh, you'll make a character walk forward with his left foot, walk forward with his right foot, and then all of a sudden you're able to just reuse that over and over again. Just shift the background a little bit, and that's gonna cause the look that every that the characters are gonna be walking and moving, and that also is a good way to add a little bit of extra time. And this is something this uh, short does quite a bit especially right mm-hmm. right from the start uh it, it starts in a funny way that uh grandma from little red riding hood is is making donuts and uh the cat's sitting there uh with a gun and grandma's just uh she's tossing the dough up in the air and the cat's shooting holes through <laughs> through the dough uh, a really really funny gag uh in that sense but it's like right away it just keeps repeating the same thing over and over and over again yes. and that's, I, th- that's, I think we went through all two dozen donuts or something yeah but that's that's what you had to do when you didn't have the budget you just had to repeat it and you know back in this day uh, these animations were made uh you know they the film is shown at 24 frames per second so that means uh 24 stills are being shown in each second so then start multiplying that by how many seconds there are and how many minutes and how many hours and that's how you get to the eventual but uh you know it, it's back in this day that's you're you're using uh you're using animation at 12 frames per second and then just doubling up on the stills so there's still a lot of work um in that mm-hmm. so you did have to work for these shortcuts because there just wouldn't be enough time or money to do it do it real justice so i I understand why they had to do it but for for a first outing i think i think little red riding hood is a lot of fun and and the best part too is since it isn't a literal adaptation of it you know it's cute it makes it different 
So I, I enjoy it. I think for everyone out there, I, I mean, for everyone watching all of these, you really should either press pause and then watch it before we talk about it or watch it right after. But I think you should do it before. So that way you, you understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Are we going to have links to these in our show notes? Because they are all readily available on yes. YouTube. Yes, absolutely. Oh, in, in fact, I'll, I'll, give out, I'll give a nice plug to a uh, YouTube channel, the, the Classics Disney. Um, mm-hmm. They have a playlist. And, no, obviously they don't own these videos. Uh, they're all public domain. Uh, at this point in time so uh, they're readily available to post them but uh, they posted a nice little playlist of all the ones we're talking about today uh, in order so i i will make sure that that will be in our show notes so everyone can uh, everyone can see them yeah what what i also love about these it really shows how from the very beginning disney walt would take the fairy tales and make them his own you know the yes. disney version i mean because you know they're the you know you already talked about you know there's this cat shooting um donuts and this cat would become a recurring character mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in a lot of Walt's films and ultimately we'll get a name later yes. on and uh and then um but you know red, red drives a car and, yeah. um you know and and you know grandma grandma when she gets there grandma's out at the movies yep. and Lee has left her a note the wolf is actually sort of a city slicker so he's a wolf in um sort of that sense that you know he's uh, a slick guy who's yeah. maybe like trying to hit on red or something you, like that that kind of a wolf you have to picture johnny depp's uh Johnny Depp's wolf and into the woods and they get that same kind of idea just kind of conniving looking yeah 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 but but he looks he's more of a person oh yeah no he's a hundred percent a person yeah Yeah, he's a person yeah it's interesting he was very much a person uh, in that movie too but yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh yes but um but then she's the, the cat anyway so then um of course he grabs red and then she's um rescued by an aviator that the cat has gone to um get to save her yeah. so anyway so and then of course it all ends happily ever after and but the uh, cartoon was never publicly shown so uh you know for what reasons we we don't know you know was it because the movie poster looks so different from the characters that were actually drawn or what who knows and this is also very much a um it's the theme is the jazz age yeah so um which is also interesting to to see that the uh, the clothes and the cars and everything yeah i mean we we just have to be glad that it is available for us to see now Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So with his first animated short completed, um, Walt's professional future looked promising. But life has a way of putting things back in balance. Uh, Walt's older brother, Roy, had gone through a couple of rounds with the flu back in 1920 and was advised to have his tonsils removed. Roy didn't want to pay a lot of money for the surgery. He didn't have a lot of money, um, nor have to miss work at the bank. So he opted to have the procedure done during his lunch hour at the doctor's office. And having it done at the doctor's office in those days was common. Um, however, 
Rather than going home for the day to rest and recover, as the doctor ordered, Roy walked back to the office. While he began hemorrhaging and was transported to the hospital by Edna Francis's brother, um, where a chest X-ray revealed a spot on his lung. So uh, Roy was diagnosed with tuberculosis, but he continued to live at the Bellefontaine house and kept his job at the bank. But he was troubled by a racking cough that kept him awake at night. So the doctors advised Roy that if he wanted any chance of recovery, he needed to move to a drier climate. But he, they didn't think he could go through another one of those Midwestern winters. Mm-hmm. So, so the doctors advised Roy that if he wanted any chance of recovery, he had to move. So Roy was sent to a veterans hospital in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So Walt was losing his strongest advocate and father figure. And it would be five years before Roy once again saw his fiancée, Edna Francis. Then Walt received more disappointing news. Elias Disney, who had moved the family to Chicago to invest in a jelly factory, um, and as with all of Elias's, Elias's business ventures, success had once again eluded him. The jelly factory had collapsed due to an embezzlement scandal, and the company president was sent to prison. Although Walt was delighted at the prospect of seeing his mother and Ruth again, he was not looking forward to living under his father's stern rule once again. So when Elias returned home, he was unimpressed with Walt's small success and fame with Newman's laughograms and believed there was no future in cartoons nor animation. But he did allow Walt to continue renting out the garage. These living arrangements didn't last too long. Walt's brother, Herbert, now worked for the U.S. Post Office in Portland, Oregon. So he told Elias about the many opportunities out there for a carpenter and encouraged his parents to move out west. And westward ho they went in November 1921. Now, since Elias and Flora sold the Bella Fontaine home, uh, Walt took a room in a boarding house and rented a small storefront to continue with the finishing touches on Little Red Riding Hood. Walt finally decided it was time to make the next big move in his career. He quit his job at Filmad and he created his own corporation. With $15,000 he raised through numerous friends and business associates, Walt incorporated Laughagram Studio on May 23, 1922. For the studio, Walt rented a suite of offices on the second floor of the McConaughey Building at 31st and Forest in Kansas City. The animators who had worked on Little Red Riding Hood joined Walt in his new venture. Walt also hired additional staff, including a girl to ink drawings, a business manager, a salesman, and a secretary. At just 20 years of age, Walter E. Disney was running his own studio. (sighs) What were you doing when you were 20, Craig? (laughs) Uh, I was continuing to be unimportant and uh, still, yeah, just... It's just, I, you, I hate thinking about it. I hate thinking you about aren't, it. You aren't, in, you aren't incorporating your own uh, business? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, oh. I think whenever I probably wasn't underage drinking in college, I was just going to class, and that was about it. 
Yeah, so. I was going to class, and I, I think I was doing student teaching at that time as well. Hey, so you're one to do that. You're one step up on <laughs> me, then. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but but now it was time to find a buyer for the films. The Laughographs. Laughagram studio would produce. A Laughagram salesman, Leslie Mace, went to New York with a print of Little Red Riding Hood in an attempt to find a buyer. Well, when Mace was about to give up because he couldn't find anyone and returned to Kansas City, he found a buyer in the Tennessee branch of Pictorial Clubs Incorporated, which distributed films non-theatrically to civic groups, churches, schools, and private businesses. Now, these are very odd terms. In the terms of the deal, pictorial clubs would send Disney a check for $100 with a payment of 11000 in 1924 after six animated films were completed and delivered. Although Walt and his staff are reinvigorated by this deal, and it allowed Walt to persuade more investors to come on board, this deal meant Walt would be pretty close to bankruptcy before any of his cartoons would be released. So between April and November 22nd, the Laughagram studio produced five more fairy tales. So billed as a modernized version of that old fairy tale, The Four Musicians of Bremen, it was completed in just a few short weeks. So, Craig, you've had a, a chance to look at um, at this film as well. So do you see a lot of development between Little Red Riding Hood and The Four Musicians of Bremen? Yeah, absolutely. There was a clear distinction and a difference between... Uh, Little Red Riding Hood and the Four Musicians of Bremen, uh, almost night and day difference. Um, it's there. I can't even point out just one thing that was truly a better about it. Um, I, I mean, start with with the background design. Uh, the watercolors being used on the backgrounds just gives it a sense of depth that that absolutely was not there before, um, and it's. You know, it's, I, I don't know what about it. Just that extra, even though it is all in black and white, that little bit of extra shading, it, it just adds to it. And it, it makes the characters pop out even more. And that being said, the character design has increased significantly, too. In Little Red Riding Hood, you know, it's not rare to see more stick figure-ish looking uh, characters being drawn out, but these ones, they're, they're all really fully fleshed out. Um, the, the personalities coming through on these characters, even though the, the range of motions and movements are still very limited uh, because, of, because of how early it is in the age of animation, but, um, you know, it's just, there, it's, it was definitely plus. There's more and uh the humor was also increased too again these aren't a, a lot of audiences today will not find these shorts funny um it's you you show it to your average kid out there he's probably going to say what what is this what in the world are you showing me right now uh, but for someone who truly appreciates animation and you know wants to see how the progression came from this you you will find you will find the humor in these shorts. You'll see where where it really stemmed from. Mm-hmm. And and definitely the characters have more personality. Yeah, I, I, I think in this than um, the previous, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. 
yeah absolutely no it's it's there it's there coming through so um you know it but that that goes back to crediting walt for for knowing that it it always wasn't just about the gags it also had to be about the story and the characters too um Mm -hmm. you know yeah you have to have you have to have those in there you have to have something to to keep the people entertained with but ultimately if the story's not there then you you fail with it Mm -hmm. right yeah exactly and again he he definitely made it his own this has virtually no resemblance Mm -hmm. to the the original story the original fairy tale if you're familiar with that yep um now the next two films that that Laughograms made, Jack and the Beanstalk and Goldilocks and the Three Bears survive, but they are unavailable to the public. So we can't really talk about those. Yes. Um, now, the final two films in the series still survive. And this is probably one of my favorites, uh, The Puss in Boots, just because it's, it's a little on the bizarre side, I think. Yeah. A- again, it's once again a modern twist on the fairy tale. And in this, what's interesting is this, 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 in this story, the kingdom is set in modern times with the castle in a contemporary, uh, you know, sort of 1920s village. So, but I, again, I think there's a, a lot of progression um, with this one in terms of storytelling. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, the, the storytelling progression is there uh, using speech bubbles to help add to uh, the, the story has made it even better. I'll even say that some of the character design starts, it, it starts, you start to see that classic Walt Disney look with it, uh, especially the the type of style you see uh, in his characters in some of the earlier Silly Symphony cartoons. I, I'm starting to get that kind of, that sense in Puss in mm-hmm. Boots. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just another enjoyable one. I, I did I did like that they added in and incorporated the speech bubbles into it because uh, it just makes it that much easier to to go along with the story. It keeps you more involved, more invested into, and uh, uh, you know it's it's just it's it's right up there. It's it's entertaining. Yeah, definitely. Again, this has. Nothing to do with the original story. No. Uh, but we do see the recurring characters also. There's the cat again. Yes. The little cat. Uh, and and the main characters are actually go- going back to Little Red Riding Hood, the, the, the male and female characters. Yes. And, and, and they're, they're going to get names in not too long from here. And, and you're right about uh, the, the king character. Who I don't know. I think of him as old King Cole. I know that yeah. he wasn't that, but that sort of round, oh I don't know, sort of jelly-like yes. character with the beard. I think that's sort of what you're talking about. We definitely see that character over and over again in the Silly Symphonies. A hundred percent. Even kind of with that Santa Claus look um, mm-hmm. in some of the Silly Symphonies too. So it's it's definitely there. The it, the groundwork is being laid in these. Mm-hmm. I I thought he even reminded me a little of King Triton from Little Mermaid, a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, but uh, and and then then there was uh, they they had their little inside joke because at one point um, Puss in Boots and I, I guess the, the the our hero Dan the young man they go to a movie theater 
and uh, and there's two signs out in front for coming attractions, and one is Cinderella, and yeah. that is the final film in this series, and that was completed in November 1922, and this short stays much closer to the original fairy tale, and it has a much stronger um, narrative than the uh, than the previous films. So, uh, so what's your take on this one, Craig? I agree wholeheartedly on the narrative. Um, it's interesting at points. I, I don't know what kind of money was coming in, what the budget was, but uh, as as Disney progressed away from doing that, that recycled animation, as I, I talked about earlier, the reusing frames over and over again, that Scooby-Doo run effect, um, it, it seems to pop up a little bit more in Cinderella than, than the past couple ones. Um, but, at the same time, it still... you. You have the title cards in between really telling the story. You have your speech bubbles um, bringing that extra dimension to to what's happening with these characters flat out knowing what they're saying now. And uh, it's so it, it's it is nice to see that they progressed in the storytelling. But I feel like this one, they had to slip back just a little bit on the animation. Um, but that that's just my take on it uh this one wasn't wasn't my favorite one of them but but i did appreciate like the hunting sequence was was very fun um in the in the first act of it and even the ball was um it's the it is fun to see the ballroom scene too they have a they have a little dancing section of it and the band's playing and uh at this point walt disney wasn't uh, wasn't rotoscoping yet um, and for those of you out there who don't know what rotoscoping is that is the the process that uh, the Fleischers uh, came up with and perfected where uh, you essentially trace live action to make the animation look more fluid and uh, if you know anything about Walt Disney classic films um, you know Snow White and the Seven Doors it, it got completed on time due to the help of rotoscoping helping to make make these the movements with snow white uh, way more fluid way more realistic so uh you know it's it's something that you don't see in these these cartoons yet it's still very uh very almost like flip book style animation uh there there's not that fluidity to it yet but uh you the, but this again don't want to repeat myself the story keeps getting stronger and stronger every time mm-hmm yeah. Now, now as the animators were finishing up this final short, they learned the Tennessee branch of pictorial clubs had gone out of business. But Walt remained upbeat and found other projects to work on as his, his young animators worked for little to no pay. So as time went on, though, many of them left for jobs with a more dependable salary. And, and and you were talking about this. Although you can see through the progression of projects produced by the Laffogram Studio, the drawing and design of the Laffograms continue to improve. The animation itself tends to regress, growing a little mm-hmm. more simple and poorly timed. And that was because they didn't get that you know th- that uh, money coming in from pictorial clubs, yep. and um, and people were leaving. 
this point, animators were going to jobs that paid, so they had less resources. Now, Walt used his animation camera to film newsreels and make films of babies and children for parents and offered private showings in their homes in order to bring in um, money into the studio. Now, some financial relief finally came when Walt received $500 with an order for a dental hygiene film, and it was titled Tommy Tucker's Tooth, and it was a live-action morality tale on the evils of not properly brushing your teeth. It was commissioned by a local dentist, Thomas McCrum. And and there's a funny story about this, because Walt had um, sent his shoes down to be repaired, and he did not have the dollar fifty that he needed in order to pick up his shoes. And then he got the call from Dr. McCrum if he would come over to his office to discuss making a film and Walt had to confess that he couldn't come over because he didn't have the dollar fifty mm-hmm. to pick up his shoes. So Dr. McCrum paid the dollar fifty so that Walt could get his oh. shoes and meet with him to discuss this film. Yeah. So so that that's how tight things had gotten for Walt by then. Um, now, now, Walt directed and Walt Pfeiffer manned the camera, and the two boys in the film who portrayed the hygienic Tommy Tucker and the careless Jimmy Jones were recruited from Walt's old Kansas City Elementary School, um, Benton Elementary. So now this is different this is now a uh, this is a live action film so uh craig what what are your thoughts on this one Uh, of all the things that we did watch uh to prepare for this episode and anyone out there who's watching it if you don't have time to watch every single one every single one of them i actually think this is a standout it is something that you do need to take the time to watch um it's it's just so gosh i don't even know how to say it um you know it's a very simple story uh you know it's humorous at times uh even going into like the whole the whole reason why you get cavities is because you know every time you eat the food stays in the grooves of your teeth and then the warmth in your mouth spoils it and it breaks down and it paints such a bleak picture of it with just uh really really simple uh animation portions of uh of food and stuff tearing away at a tooth and making it bigger and then uh it's you know it's just it's very simple um you know you could tell that this didn't really take that much effort uh from walt but the one benefit in that is that it gave him more experience filming live action which I, I think was very, very important. So, and then it also, uh, you know, in a, in a fun way, I look at this as the very first, uh, the very first time really that you, you started getting into the things that he would do during uh, wartime, where he was making informational videos in that period too. So, uh, you know, it's got to so, some of those ones from wartime are some of my favorites so it's nice to see pretty much where they got their start in terms of doing informational shorts mm-hmm. yeah i thought i thought there was some 
fairly funny segments, especially the part when they were really trying to drive home how not taking care of your teeth oh, will yeah. just ruin you, ruin your prospects for getting a job. Yeah, no, because <laughs> because when when you know when. Tommy Tucker and um, Jimmy Jones went to apply for a job in an office um, because of Jimmy Jones. Not only his teeth just made him look like the most pathetic, bedraggled boy, and there was robust Tommy Tucker, you know, and, and all of that. And I wrote this down. I had to. The reason that Tommy gets the job is because Tommy's neat appearance and good teeth show that he takes pride in himself, uh, which was just funny because uh, Rhino and Oliver and myself were having the discussion today about like whether you're, you're coloring your hair or you have tattoos. Should that matter in a job? Uh, well, I, people are still holding on to stuff uh, about appearance and taking pride in yourself and if you can't take pride in yourself then how are you going to take pride in a job and and so i I need to show this one to them so that way they can they can learn how things were back in the good old days yeah well and it's interesting too because i noticed the camera angles when they when they showed um jimmy jones it was from above so that there were more shadows on his face oh yeah so he looked even more haggard but with the robust i mean dare I say a little overweight, Tommy uh, Tommy Tucker, um, the way they did the angles, you know, his face was fully illuminated and looked healthy and all that. So so Walt was getting the hang of, of camera angles and lighting and things like that. Too. Oh, yeah. And I'll even say uh, there was there was definitely makeup work done on Jimmy in that uh, in that regard oh, yeah. too um <laughs> it's it just just another different type of artistry but you're you're absolutely right uh you know the the lighting and the angles that it was being shot at make a big effect on uh, the overall presentation to it and uh it, you know it's 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 very different live action from animation it's due to i i know the basics are all there the core is all there but uh, the follow-through is very different and this this shows that uh, walt had the chops to be able to do both mm-hmm Exactly. Now, what's interesting is Tommy Tucker continued to be popular in Kansas City long after Walt achieved success in California. Uh, The fiancé of Jack Records, who portrayed Jimmy Jones, saw the film when she was in nursing school in 1933. I love that. Yeah, so it's nice to know that that Jack did take care of his teeth and met a nice girl. Exactly. A nurse. (laughs) A nurse, yes. Now, now, other Laughagram projects included a series of Laughlets, which were short cartoon and stop action films using cell animation and a technique now called claymation. So Walt was experimenting with all different forms yeah. of animation. Um, Walt attempted to sell them to Universal Pictures, but that studio was not interested. And regrettably, none of the Laughlets have survived. Now, in the sp- yeah. In the spring of 1923, Laughagram was contracted to produce what we might call today a music video based on the song Martha, just a plain old-fashioned name for the Isis Theater. And it was a live-action film shot on homemade sets and in various park-like settings around Kansas City. And Walt referred to it as a song-o-reel. And Walt was hoping this would become a series and be widely distributed. 
despite that not happening, something fortuitous did come from it. Although the film was a sing-along, it was, of course, a silent film. The Isis Theater's organist, Carl Stalling, would play the tune as the audience sang along with the lyrics that appeared on the film. So Walt and Stalling began a friendship that would lead to Stalling becoming the music arranger for Walt's groundbreaking animated cartoons with synchronized sound. And Stalling would become the first music director for the Disney studio before moving on to a legendary career with the Warner Brothers animation department. Now, Walt's financial situation became grave. Uh, Walt could no longer afford a room in a boarding house and lived in a lafagram office. He'd shave in the restroom down the hall and once a week pay a dime to use the public baths at the Union Station. Walt and his employees had a line of credit with the Forest Inn Cafe on the first floor of the McConaughey Building after the owners, Jerry Ragus and Louis Katstos, felt sorry for the hard-working, hungry youngsters. And looking back on this time in his life, Walt recalled, it was probably the blackest time of my life. I really knew what hardship and hunger were like. I remember a couple of Greeks who ran a restaurant below my office, and it gave me credit to run up the food bills for a time. But even they grew hard-hearted in the end. And though they never really let me starve, they always made sure I got the cheapest food in the house and fed me on leftovers. It was a pretty lonely and miserable time of my life. Now, Walt's brother Roy, now in a Tucson hospital, knew Walt needed money, and he would send him a blank check from time to time with a note saying, saying that they could be filled out for any amount up to $30. The checks were always filled out for the maximum amount. A process server began showing up at the Lafagram offices looking for a Mr. Walt Dinsey. Uh, the misspelling of Walt's last name delayed the process server from his mission of serving Walt for outstanding bills that could not be paid. Walt then came up with a new idea that was a variation on the popular Out of the Inkwell cartoon series by Max Fleischer, which featured an animated character in a live-action world. And this was, I think, the Popo the Clown series, because they used to still play these on television when I was really little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and Walt's idea was to have a real character in an animated world. And Walt Disney found a young actress, four-year-old Virginia Davis, who had these lovely long curls. And he believed that she would be perfect for his series after seeing one of her ads for Wanaker's Bread in a theater. Now, despite Laughagram continuing to be in a serious financial situation and every animator owed back wages... Walt went ahead with filming Alice in Cartoonland, which was later retitled Alice's Wonderland. And Walt, Rudy, Hugh, and Ub appeared on screen with Virginia, who wore her mother's favorite Tam hat, it's called tam shanter in the opening live-action sequences. Um, for those scenes, Walt directed Virginia by saying, do this and do that, uh, of course, with no sound, since it was a silent film. 
The remaining scenes took place in Cartoon Land, in which everything on the screen except for Virginia was animated. And for those scenes, Walt directed by telling stories. All the acting by Virginia was done in pantomime. He'd say to Virginia, a bear's chasing you, or look sad, you've just been hit over the head. So there was no script. It was just Walt talking, you know, um, Virginia through the scenes. So Walt believed Alice's Wonderland would turn his studio around. He wrote a letter to Margaret J. Winkler, the New York distributor of the Out of the Inkwell and Felix the Cat series about Alice's Wonderland. And Felix the Cat was like the number one um, series at the time. Um, Margaret Winkler responded two days later in writing, expressing interest in the film and was interested in seeing a print of the new animated cartoon. And if it was Walt said it was, she would be interested in contracting for a series of them. Now, despite Miss Winkler's interest, Walt could not respond because he did not have a completed print of the film and his studio was continuing its financial freefall. However, Walt's upbeat attitude and unfailing determination kept his staff motivated and enabled Walt to recapitalize and continue working on Alice's Wonderland. So in the film, Alice visits an animation studio where the animators, including Walt Disney, show her various scenes on their drawing boards, including a cat dancing to a cat band, a mouse poking at a cat until it jumps off the table, a couple of mice boxing whilst the animators crowd around cheering and acting as corner men. And that night, Alice dreams of taking a train to Cartoon Land, where a red carpet reception awaits. And she appears in live action. They have a welcoming parade with Alice riding on an elephant. And the cartoons dance for her and she dances for them. Meanwhile, lions break out of the zoo. And the lions chase her into a hollow tree and then into a cave and down a rabbit hole. And finally, she jumps off a cliff and awakens back in her bed. So, Craig, here here is now what is hopefully going to turn Walt's fortunes around. So, what what is your what are your thoughts on this? I absolutely really enjoy um, the, this first original uh, Alice comedy. Um, it's there's a lot of good things to say about it, um, and obviously, the first one is that. Technically speaking, it, it was brilliant at the time. Um, it, it, changing around what Fleischer's were doing with the Out of the Inkwell and putting live action right in the middle of a cartoon world. Uh, it, it, it was a great, great, great move. And, um, you know, a, a lot of that can be chalked up to the brilliance of Walt Disney as well as the the technical know-how of Ubiworks and everyone else that was working on it. Um, but it's, it's all very simple little effects that uh, that just come together so well. I mean, people... I, I, I don't even... I, I can't comprehend how people back in the days were just sitting there watching it because I, I imagine they had trouble understanding, especially like the, the, the sequences where starting with Walt sitting there with with uh virginia and you know you see the the white sketch sheet up and uh, the animation is actually happening on there um 
you know, I, I, back in that day, I, I imagine that people were were freaking out about it the same way they did without mm-hmm. the inkwell. You know, it's, it's still simple, but it, it's so well done with with layering cells. And uh, then once Alice actually goes into Wonderland and how, I mean, just seamlessly, seamlessly blending in, um, it the the camera work on it was out of this world um and you know maybe walt was just yelling all these directions at her but you know i i don't know if it came down to he was yelling the right things or they had to really do some heavy animating around the things that he eventually did yell at her to do but regardless it all comes together so so nicely um and you know there are issues with scales at some point you know it's uh, it goes back and forth between alice looking pretty pretty life-size and realistic in it and then she'll be just slightly a little bit smaller than where she Mm -hmm. was uh in the last point before but uh, again it's using using the technique of blending the, the live action and animation and and changing the the position of the cells to really come and blend it all together it's just it's it's really spectacular um you know and if you if you don't study this stuff you'll you'll probably be sitting around wondering how it's done even to this day and oh yeah absolutely that's the that's the beauty of the alice comedies is that to this day they're still they're still gonna have uh intrigue people out there um and in in terms of the animation itself uh just again another step up in quality um that we've seen from the other laughograms uh just 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 a little bit better not not too much better a lot of a lot of reused gags at the same time too and it, it points it really heavily uh, weighs down on having alice being live action there's a sequence where she dances for a little while um in the animated world and <laughs> so you know that's that's buying a little bit of time there but uh you know it's, and the lion chase back yes. and forth back and forth back and forth yep. yeah exactly <laughs> so there, there's a little bit of things in there to kind of st- stretch out time but uh, overall it's this this one besides tommy tucker's tooth this is if you're only watching a couple of these and humoring us with all this uh y- you need to watch this uh, it's very important mm-hmm. if if you truly do appreciate disney uh, you have to see this yes yeah and and th- this this was groundbreaking and and um yeah and as we're going to learn in future episodes this really this really was significant in Walt's career this film Yes, And, you know, the other thing that struck me about it is Walt was already trying to create a sense of magic in what he was doing. Because when Virginia or Alice goes into the uh, the studio, she says she wants to see how funnies are made or something. Yeah. And when Walt brings her in and, and first he shows her that, you know, the sort of the magic uh, drawing pad where the animals are. But then as he then he escorts her further into the office, the animes are. And you see all the little characters just sort of they're playing on the table. Yeah. And they're yeah. doing all this stuff. So already there's something magical about this place because these animated characters are frolicking around and interacting with the humans. And that, that sort of sets the stage for, you know, Walt's Magic Kingdom. Oh, you know, yeah. and 
hundred percent. I mean, whenever mm-hmm. people, uh, whenever people idealize Walt and romanticize Walt, uh, this is this is one of the perfect examples um not just because you know it, it is him on screen but because it's blended with these characters that are performing around the <laughs> studio uh this is a prime example of why why people love Walt Disney it was uh, mm-hmm. it was almost a, a precursor to seeing him on on TV in the Disneyland series just uh, you know, seeing him smile, lighten up in the studio—that's that's what we like thinking of whenever we think of Walt Disney. It's mm-hmm. it's all right there. Yeah, and, it, and it's fun seeing a, a young and um, underweight Walt. Yeah, you know, because we all think of of the the grandfatherly Walt in his final years. But yes, yes, he's a young, vibrant Walt, and that's fun to see. You know. Now, now, all of Walt's hopes to save his studio were with Alice's Wonderland, and his expectation was that it would lead to a distribution contract. Despite spending two and a half years trying to do anything he could to think of to capitalize on the success of the first Newman Laughograms and turn that success into a series, he finally realized there were no more avenues left open to him. Walt declared bankruptcy and ended Laughograms' studio. He was completely dejected, feeling he shouldn't let down everyone who had believed in him and financially supported the studio. Rudy Ising looked back on that time. Um, Walt was seriously considering going to New York to work on Felix the Cat. Walt didn't because he concluded, I missed the boat. I had got into the animated cartoon field too late. Film cartooning had been going on for all of six or seven years. <laughs> I know. Way too late. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Now, Walt shared his feelings with his brother, Roy, who agreed that Walt should leave Kansas City. Roy w- wrote, Walt, kid, I think you should get out of there. I don't think you can do any more for it. Roy suggested Walt move to Los Angeles, saying he could stay with their uncle, Robert, who had moved from Kansas City to Hollywood, and also encouraged Walt to move out west. Walt concluded... My only hope lay in live-action movies. Walt decided he would go to Hollywood and try to become a director. He spent two weeks making films of babies to earn enough money for his trip out west. Walt earned enough money for a train ticket to California. In July of 1923, Walt left the Laughagram studio as it was still set up and packed up all his worldly goods in a pasteboard suitcase. The night before his departure, Walt had dinner with Edna Francis. The next day, the mother-in-law of Walt's brother, Herbert, gave Walt food for the trip, and her son drove Walt to Union Station. Walt purchased a first-class ticket and, with all the lower berths taken, rode west in an upper berth, with $40 in his pocket. Walt described his mood on that day he boarded the Santa Fe, California Limited as just free and happy. In August of 1923, a 20-year-old Walt Disney stepped off the train in Los Angeles with a pasteboard suitcase, $40, and his dream and confidence. So, Craig, so looking back on Walt's early career in Kansas City, I I think it's amazing when you think of all the talent that 
came out of Kansas City. I mean, that really was the heart of of animation because they all, as we will learn in future episodes, many of those people that we've talked about in today's episode followed Walt out and they became industry greats in animation out in Hollywood. Yeah, no, it's... uh, Every now and then, I mean, it happens throughout history with different things. It's just a, a cluster of brilliant people were all together at the right place at the right time with with similar mindsets and uh th- that's definitely a case with with all of these animators they were just it, it just lucked out that they were all there i mean it's mm-hmm. you you can't it, you can't just leave that up to as as a coincidence uh in my opinion it's it's like it was predestined in a way but imagine if Laughagram Studio had been successful and it had grown. The the heart of animation, uh, the animation industry could very well have been in Kansas City, Missouri, rather than Hollywood. I, d- I don't want to even think about that. But, uh, I just, that, well, that, that kind of leads on. If Walt never made it, if Laughagram would have worked out, and he never made it to Hollywood, where would he have still strived to continue to to change the game, to up the quality, to to be new, to be innovative? Or would he have just been content in doing what was already making him successful? Um, you know, with without that heavy failure to have him to move on, would, would he have pushed himself? I mean, that's... It's, part of his success going on into the future is that he he couldn't fail again so uh i i just don't know i i'm glad it i'm glad it didn't work out with laughagram um mm-hmm. i i just can't even imagine where we'd all be today if that would have worked yeah. out well and like walt says and you can hear it and hear him say it in the walt disney family museum you know he had a failure and he says he thinks everybody needs a good hard failure in their life yep in order to um you know sort of move on and be successful so walt had that failure and as we're going to learn as we continue our series on the animated films of walt disney um he then rose up and and became successful yes yep yeah so uh so many books films uh articles interviews and lectures were sourced for this episode of connecting with walt including walt disney an american original by bob thomas um walt disney's missouri the roots of a creative genius by brian burns robert w butler and dan Vietz. Walt Before Mickey, Disney's Early Years, 1919 to 1928, by Timothy S. Susanen. Walt in Wonderland, The Silent Films of Walt Disney, by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. The Man, the Magic, the Memories, by the Walt Disney Family Museum. And there's a DVD by Inkwell Images that that I want to recommend. Uh, Their their mission is to, they do series on these um, vintage um, films. And they did one on the legendary Laughagram's Fairy Tales by Walt Disney. And there's also a nice little history. They do a nice little commentary on what we've um, discussed on this episode. Mm -hmm. 
So it's definitely worth getting. And they have uh, really cleaned up the shorts and um, really brought them up as close as they could to um, sort of today's uh, more crisp standards. Very nice. All that. Yeah. Um, um, to end um, our October 2016 season of Connecting with Walt, uh, Craig and I have a conversation with Disney artist, animator, storyman, and legend Floyd Norman, who shares stories about his fascinating and animated life. And uh, this this is definitely a not-to-miss yeah, um, conversation. It may be one of our best episodes we've ever had. So I think so. Absolutely. Uh, what a character. So it's a it's a nice way to end our October season. Yes. So, so Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network? Oh goodness, it's almost easier to ask me where won't I be over the next little bit of time? <laughs> um, you know, of course, I am available to listen to uh, every single Tuesday on the Disney World edition on Thursdays. On the uh, Universal Edition. That one's on Thursdays. <laughs> Couldn't even think about it. Um, every now and then on Fridays on Dispop, we're coming into uh, on the uh, the kind of the late fall, early winter season of movies. So a lot of stuff coming out here in the, the next little bit. Uh, Doctor Strange, Moana, uh, just so much more that we're going to be tackling. So uh, get ready to hear my voice a lot more on that. And, uh, you know, every day on the Daily Fix over on the Diz side of things. So uh, you'd have well, to work. Next next installment in the little Harry Potter mythology J.K. Rowling's of Fantastic Beasts yep. or whatever it's called. Yep, Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Forgot about that. They, they, oh, I'm going to have a busy couple of months uh, <laughs> coming up here. So what about you, Michael? Where are you at? Well, you can find me every Sunday night on the Disunplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto Willie, and Tony Spatel. We have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. So you can listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. And, and if you do listen in on Mixler, you can find out what is this blue hour all about. <laughs> um, you can also download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disney, Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and hopefully leave some positive reviews and ratings. Um, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Musketeer Michael. And on Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>